0: Welcome to Florida Matters More, the podcast for Florida Matters, WUSF Public Media's show about the issues and events that Floridians care about. I'm Robin Sessingham and I host Florida Matters along with Carson Cooper. I'm here in the studio with Florida Matters producer Stephanie Colombini. Hey, hey Stephanie. Robin. Also joining us today, Mary Shedden, WUSF News Director. Hey, Mary. Hey, Robin. You can hear Florida Matters Tuesday evenings at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 7.30 on WUSF 89.7 or streaming on WUSF.org. You can also hear it Mondays at 10 p.m. on Classical WSMR 89.1 and 103.9. So this week on Florida Matters, we looked at ethnic newspapers in Tampa Bay, including the Weekly Challenger in St. Petersburg, which is an African-American-centered, family-owned newspaper, and Tampa's Spanish-language newspaper, La Gazeta, which is approaching the century mark in the Tampa Bay area. The question is, if the big historic newspapers like Tampa Tribune can't make it, how are these guys, how are they making it? Well, I, Mary. I think what you're looking
1: at is a publication. these are publications that are serving a specific community. And you know what, they have a a whole lot better chance than what people call the mainstream media or the mass media because uh, I worked at the Tampa Tribune for eight and a half years and it was a publication that was geared toward the general audience. That meant everyone from birth to 100 to um, regardless of where you live and covering a bunch of areas. So they really didn't target a specific community. So they weren't building um, the relationship that uh these mm. publications and they really didn't have
0: they didn't have their segment of the market they were competing head-to-head with the uh, saint pete times right which you know so they're both going for the same thing whereas these newspapers each have i would say their little corner of the market with nobody is competing with really Although you know there, there might there's another african-american paper i think in tampa probably right, is not competing example. with the one in saint petersburg
2: They are hyper-local, and and as Mary mentioned, that relationship. In the show, Lynn Johnson, who's the publisher of the Weekly Challenger, talks about how Some people that she would hear from pastors that, you know, parishioners would tell them the only reason they show up at church every Sunday is to get their copy of the Weekly Challenger. Like there's that relationship and that bond they have with the publication that uh, some of the more generic mainstream ones, you don't necessarily, they're just a newspaper. They're not your newspaper.
1: Uh, Patrick Mantega, the owner and publisher of La Gaceta, he was saying how they were created uh, almost 100 years ago to fill uh, to tell the news that wasn't being told elsewhere and so they immediately were building that relationship with the audience um, with people in the community because they knew they couldn't get that information anywhere else the the Tampa Tribune the Tampa Bay the Tampa Bay Times they are they weren't telling the stories of the cigar factories in Ybor City um, the other thing about uh, La Gaceta which fascinates me is that it was printed in three languages um, they were reaching out to the Spanish the pe- uh, people who um, spoke Spanish, Italian, and English, and they uh, actually tout that trilingual label. Is that a because
0: lot. it's like the Ybor City kind of cigar culture? Is that mm-hmm. because there was also an Italian connection there in Ybor City, or to the to the uh, to the cigar industry? Right. And, are, yeah, the, the Italians
2: came to. Uh, it was Patrick Mantega's grandfather, I believe, Victoriano, um, and they said, you know. The immigrants were losing their language and their culture because they had to adapt to kind of the English-American way of life and the cultures here in Tampa. So they saw what was going on with the Latin community and said, you know, we want something like that where we can, you know, preserve our culture and, and keep our spoken language and our written language out there. And so that's why the Mantegas decided to also print in Italian to kind of include them in what they were doing for their own community. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And they were
1: were saying they didn't want to forget how to read the written Italian language. They said they're talking, they're speaking the language with their children and their grandchildren, but they wanted to be able to see the language as well. And I found that fascinating and I, it makes you want to pick up a copy and and look at it and see the language.
0: I think that what we're getting at is this, this, basically, it's niche marketing. You're talking to your community. And I know that um, the publisher of the Weekly Challenger, the African-American newspaper, was saying, she was saying, we weren't seeing the stories about our community. Well, I was thinking it's true of any community. That's why I think publications that find these niche audiences, whether they're parents or an ethnic group or a geographical group i had done a, a story about the lakelander magazine which is a this beautiful full color publication in lakeland and i thought you know with all these print publications dying out how is it making it and he the publisher of that he's a very experienced publisher in the niche market he used to publish uh, a magazine about mustangs mustang cars so it's an interesting market, I think.
1: Well, and you're going to see that in newspapers, whether it's here in Florida or uh, across the country, is the, the publications that are surviving as a print product really are those niche publications and really serving an audience as we turn, as we develop and as the internet becomes this boundless thing. I mean, people are reading The, the Guardian from the UK every morning if they want to because it's accessible mm-hmm. now, but those niche um, audiences those niche communities their stories are just as important as they were a hundred years ago but these publications know and if they can figure out how to make it work financially and create that revenue stream because you know what there's going to be a coffee shop or a realtor who still wants to put an ad in those publications and so where else can they go but those niche markets. Those
2: local. Well on that I mean, you know, they're surviving, but they're hardly thriving. Even these, neat, you know, in the show, Lynn Johnson says that the
0: weekly. She's Challenger, the publisher of the yes. uh, Weekly Challenger, though. Okay. Yeah,
2: you know, advertising is way down, and that the bulk of their business is on the internet, and they don't make a lot of money on the internet. So, I mean, they're mm. these publications are surviving, but they're feeling that same you know, push towards digital that everybody else is feeling and, and they're uncertain about how many actual physical copies they'll be circulating in five, ten years. So they're fighting it out for, you know, the love of the game, but it's
0: not everyone still is still having feeling a hard that. time. Yeah. Well I tell you what, you were talking about um the fact that these niche markets are making it because people still want to hear what's happening in their neighborhood. And they also want to see pictures. Mm -hmm. We had a publication up in North, I lived up in North Florida, and they had a small little paper that came out and they would publish, I thought it was genius, they would publish all the pictures of the Little League teams Mm -hmm. because every parent wants to see a picture of their kid and they want a hard copy of it. And so they're going to definitely take those Uh, copies of those newspapers. And I was thinking the same thing. I get the Jewish press, and um, the Jewish press will have pictures of bar mitzvah kids. Mm -hmm. And who doesn't want a picture of, everybody wants a picture of their kid. And the Jewish press will do things just like those for the black community and the Spanish community. The Jewish press will spend, uh, you know, a lavish 2,000 words on a story about the Florida-Israel Business Accelerator, mm-hmm. which might get a mention in the Tampa Bay Times, but it's not going to get 2,000 words, but right. there's people who are interested in those stories and want to see more.
1: There's the, the thing about these publications is they are so important to telling the story of a community long-term, and one of the things that I really got from the show is I'm um, sitting there and as I became a journalist and I heard the phrase, this is the first draft of history. The journal, the news stories you read it's the first draft of history. We're there to record it. We're not there to do, you know, sometimes we can do analysis down the road, but our job is to tell that story as it's happening. And so when you look at these specialized publications that look at certain communities, if they're not doing it, those stories could be lost. Mm -hmm. And that absolutely terrifies me As, as a member of any community. And well, I think I,
0: Rodney Kite Powell, who is a historian we have on mm-hmm, Florida Matters, yes. says a lot of, especially back in the 60s or 70s, you know, if if the uh, Weekly Challenge or La Gazette hadn't printed stories of what was going on in their communities, it wouldn't have gotten printed. Right. Um, you know, not necessarily the readers of the St. Pete Times weren't necessarily interested in the same things, and it would have been lost to history. So that was very interesting. Yeah, and that idea that... <clears throat>
2: the positive stories weren't being told. You could read the St. Pete Times and see that a black person had caused a crime or something like that. But it's the successes and the accomplishments that the community was making. But that's
0: these niche. A regular paper isn't going to print those, what they call successes. You know, audiences are always saying, where are the good news stories? Where are the good news stories? Well, your regular newspaper is covering the school board meetings and the city council meetings and things like that. They're not necessarily going to put that about any community, what those, you know, the successes that you're talking about. Or the fundraisers, which are really important to some communities and Jewish press, you're going to see a mm-hmm. big article about the Jewish Federation fundraiser. I don't expect to see that in the Lakeland Ledger. Right, you know? right, right. But even like
2: an African-American getting involved in city council or a Hispanic person, you know, making a, a, a business decision that impacted the whole community. You know, there are certain stories that aren't just like fluff news stories that even kind of those stories weren't being told in the mainstream Newspapers. Now it might, you know, now I'm sure there's a lot more integration and diversity in all coverage, but in the 60s and the 70s, even the political accomplishments of the black community in St. Pete, say, weren't being given the attention that, say, the same accomplishment from a white person would have. That's what we learned. Right. And
1: and you're going to find that the stories that were in the mainstream publications at that time were very stereotypical. And the fact is, if you don't live in a community and know a community, your ignorance can show when you're a journalist. And I think that's a real challenge we have is if you don't know about it it's hard to write about it and report it. And that is some of the argument of um, having these publications, but it's also the reason why we want to make sure as journalists we're asking questions and making sure we're not making assumptions. and. Uh, it- in the sixties and seventies, it was a lot of stereotypes, and you know, um, going back to the historical importance of telling the story of a community and the history. One thing I absolutely love is the University, and they mentioned this in the yes. show. The University of Florida and the University of South Florida have been digitizing these niche um, publications. Well, actually, they've been digitizing all publications, and USF is um, working on a project with um, the Weekly Challenger. Digitizing whatever copies they can find, because not our, right. all are there. I was
2: just gonna say, yeah, at least in the '60s and it might be hard to to find those copies in the '60s and '70s because. Uh, Lynn Johnson, the publisher, said that her father, who founded the magazine back then, that idea of let's archive this wasn't necessarily there. Oh and no! And they got thrown when the room was full; it got
1: thrown out. Right. So she has it. So they're missing
0: a, some of those. Uh, th- right. The very so early. they're
1: searching, and and it's mm. an active project. And it was they didn't actually, have
0: like a morgue like we had in no, old newspapers. No. They didn't have a. I never thought of a that. A family,
1: it was the family business, yeah. and you don't, you yeah, don't. What think am I going to do with that? all this old stuff? Right. <laughs> and so, right now, they are literally, if they find a copy, they're trying to get it and digitize it, really by word of mouth, right now, which I think is a really neat project. But the University of Florida is digiti- also digitizing all Florida publications, so you can go back to um, go on their archive, which is their on their library website at the university, and look for. Um, publications from the Gainesville Sun um, the Florida Times Union um, and these niche publications um, the the college papers are even digitized
2: I think it's I I love history
1: things so I really
2: enjoyed this show and I would I've just it was so awesome hearing Rodney Kite Powell, who was the historian, talk about how he himself as like a young guy went to the La Giseta, um headquarters or whatever and asked uh, the Mantegas if he could just like hang out there and help archive and, you know, go through old papers. And they're like, who is this white guy that's coming in? And, what you know, but they got to know each other really well. And I had no idea before the show happened. So we learned that during the taping that actually they had had a history together, um, Patrick Mantega and Rodney Kite Powell. And so just that idea of preserving history. And one thing that he points out is that even more valuable than the stories that you see in the physical papers, all the photographs that didn't make it in, you know, for every cover shot, you have 100 rejects, but those are awesome for a historian to know you know what was going on back then so the newspapers and everything that comes along with them are pretty priceless so where are
0: have. these? So you said digitized the yes. University of Florida, right? Archives, so online, but like Rodney Kite Powell's, where's the stuff that he was archiving? Well, so U-
1: USF Library also. They ha- also I have, they have some, online. Lagaceta has their
2: own. Uh, Patrick Mantega says they don't throw anything away. So I think, you know, they've been around almost a hundred years. They're missing some of the like really early stuff, but they have, you know, records for decades, and so That's they keep their own stuff. Yeah, it's all over the place, which is good. Um, and And then the digitizing just helps kind of keep it permanent out there so that, God forbid, if, you know, anything happens to the physical copies, it's, you know, it's there.
1: As a journalist, I'm a little selfish in thinking uh, uh, that I'm so glad these things are being saved and digitized. And I wish every kid who doesn't consume media right now, whether it's listening to the radio or listening to podcasts like this one, that they understood the importance of media as it's happening and wish they consumed it as it was happening because suddenly they get an assignment, tell me about Ybor City, and all of a sudden they discover the Gaceta archives and they're like, Wow! I never knew this. Well, you know what? It's not just about history; it's about now. And I think, you know, that's why I'm rooting for groups like the Weekly Challenger and La Gaceta to thrive into the future as much as as us. You know, I think it's critical we keep these the as many media voices out there that are telling the t- stories of communities.
0: Well, here's the last question. This is mm-hmm. the big one for me. <laughs> is that you mentioned? Um, that Stephanie, you mentioned that um, they said something about uh, coming to church just to pick up a copy of the newspaper was a big reason they're coming right. to church, and that that makes me think because you know a lot of civic institutions are fading away. As you know, we know that fewer people are coming to church yeah. or going to civic organizations like Rotary or Kiwanis Club, things like that. So these kinds of publications do they become more important to people as a gathering place or? Are they going to die out also suffering the same fate as these other civic institutions? What do you think? I could go either way.
2: I mean, every you see that so much is, you know, going digital now and you're losing physical contact with mm-hmm. humans, with, you know, objects. But then you also see that as things go away, then people like miss them more. You know, record players are back, <laughs> Polaroids, you know, so right. maybe that's could happen where, you know, you might realize, oh my gosh, the Weekly Challenger, I haven't seen a copy in forever. And then all of a sudden, that's the hot thing to grab at the vintage store or wherever. Mm -hmm. And it sort of makes a resurgence. So, well, I think, I hope
0: so. I'm just thinking (laughs) though, if you're not going to church, and you're not feeling a sense of that tight community anymore, Maybe your interest in what and well, the stories
1: goes away. Also, I think that's where social media comes in. And I think mm-hmm. Lynn Johnson from the Weekly Challenger really she get I think she gets it. She said, you know, we're going to continue our newspaper, we're going to continue the printed copy, so it shows up at church. But she's on Facebook, and I I follow the Weekly Challenger on Facebook, and it's an active site, and the conversations are happening there. And so the important thing is that she see you know she sees that newspaper's role as being a voice for the community to come together and she's going where the people are and the fact is they're on social media and heck we're trying to, we're doing that as well as WUSF and I think that's the responsibility of journalists in the media is to keep our job is to create that com- be the place where conversation can happen
2: and from a business side I think that's the question is will the industry sort of adapt because right now the Weekly Challenger is on social media, and she said actually even more so than visiting the dot com or whatever and looking at the newspaper that way. They go to Facebook first. But as Patrick Mantego with La pointed out on the show, there's not really any money in being on social media. So, you know, the question is, do you start? I don't know, subscribing, you know, like us on Facebook and pay to to actually view this piece, you know, view this article or our advertising, you know, is that going to change and get more involved? There's got to be some way that financially the, you know, somehow the business stays afloat because the desire to provide the content is there, the content's there, the audience that appreciates it is there, but as always in life, money gets in the way.
1: If you look at the hyper-local publications, it's a local realtor, it's a local restaurant that isn't going to get any you know, that depends on foot traffic. Um, Those are the kind of places that are going to still advertise and print products. But the fact is you've got to figure out that online model because that's where the audience is.
0: Thanks for joining us. Listen to Florida Matters, Tuesdays at 6.30 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 7.30 a.m. on WUSF 89.7. You can always find it online at WUSF.org. Come back next week for another episode of Florida Matters More and subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher.